The scripture that Pastor John is going to unfold for us this morning is found in Romans 5 and starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. That is, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Father, we have heard it for the fifth time. And I ask for your help again for me and for us. Words to be spoken that accord with truth, your word, and ears that accord with humility and openness and godliness. Father, it's so weighty what we're about to take up, so serious, 10,000 times more serious than the average TV show sport, leisure, because life is serious. Life is weighty. And so I ask for your help for all of us. Come, guard me from Satan and pride and fear, self-consciousness, and grant us as a people to revel in your word. So shape us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Beget faith. Beget holiness. Beget humility. Beget reconciliation. Cause healing. Oh God, take these five loaves and two fish of my words And feed thousands with food better than I could ever dream, I pray. 
In Jesus' powerful and glorious name, amen. We've preached four messages on this text now and are beginning number five. And there will probably be a couple more. Um, And every one of them up until now has been on the positive side of these verses. And today, I think it is right and fitting and needful for our souls that we linger with the negative side of the verses and talk about the doctrine of original sin, which is what these verses are about. And then close with six benefits of knowing and believing these things. So, not wanting to be unfair to Paul again, I'm going to read the positive side first. So I'm going to go down the verses, starting at verse 15, and show you what I mean by the positive half of these verses, which we've been talking about for four weeks. Romans 5:15 in the middle. You'll have to look carefully to see where I'm beginning in each of these verses. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Verse 16 in the middle. The free gift, that's the gift of Christ's righteousness, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. 17, in the middle of the verse. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, in the middle. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. 19, in the middle. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. 21, in the middle. So grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we've been talking about those halves for four weeks, and now it's time for us to linger over the first half of the verses, the negative half, the sin half, and try to understand the relationship between Adam and his sin as the first man and the rest of his posterity, all human beings. What's the relationship? How did his sin affect us? And then six practical benefits of seeing these things. And let me say at the outset here and just make you as aware as I I can, this is huge. And the, the question we're taking up here is massive because how you understand your human nature and the human nature of everybody else in the world politicians, educators, your children, your spouse, the people you work with. How you understand human nature affects how you feel and how you act about everything from child rearing to marriage to education to voting and instituting governments and making laws. Everything is affected by your view of human nature, what its possibilities are, what its dangers are. 
This is big. Really big. And whether you embrace what I say this morning or not, you will embrace some view. And you need to ask whether the view you hold about human nature is a well-founded view. Could you give an account for it this morning? If you say, well, I believe humans are blank. Can you give me reasons? And I just simply want to try to lay out what the Bible teaches, especially here in Romans 5, about human nature and our condition before God, our Creator, as it relates to our forefather, Adam. So let's lay out the negative half of these verses, just like we did the positive. So if you want to follow me, I'm going to start at verse 12 and read the downside, which laid the groundwork for the glorious news of justification, which we've been talking about. Verse 12 at the beginning. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Now, that's massive. That's a book. Because death is everywhere, and we will all die. And the meaning of it is not absurd. It has a meaning. It comes from somewhere. It leads to somewhere. It's not a blip of irrationality on a rational screen of life. It comes from somewhere. It fits into a big scheme of things. Verse 14. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Now, the longer I study these verses 12 to 21, the more important that verse becomes. Because I think this verse is designed by Paul in the flow of his argument to say and to guard us from making the mistake of thinking that we are condemned first for our own individual sinning. But rather, we are guilty and condemned because of Adam's sinning. And our sinning in him. Now, I'm not going to argue for that this morning because I did already in the first sermon and the second. But it's crucial that you see Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who hadn't sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin. The point of that is, the death and the penalty that they're enduring is not owing to their doing what Adam did. They are suffering for what Adam did. Verse 15. By the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression, Adam's, resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one transgression of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all. That may be the most sweeping statement of all. 
Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So that's the downside. That's the negative half. The doctrine of original sin has two pieces to it. One of them is taught in this text clearly, thoroughly, and provocatively. One of them is pointed to in this text and discussed elsewhere in the letters of Paul as well as other books of the Bible. We'll take them one at a time. We'll start with the one that's clear and everywhere in this text, and then we'll move to the other one. I'll tell you what the two are, and then we'll take them. The one that's barely hinted at is when Adam sinned, and then humanity came from him, we inherited in some way a depravity or a corruption or a sinful nature that makes us sin, that bends us towards sinning and gives us a rebelliousness towards God. That's a, an innate thing that happens to us. We come into the world with that. Everybody's like that. The other piece is that we sinned in Adam's sinning, such that his fall became our fall and his condemnation our condemnation. That's the one we'll take first. So, we sin in Adam's sinning. Verse 12 speaks of this, as do all the verses, I believe. And I'm not going to rehearse the argument that I gave weeks and weeks ago on this. But let me read... Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, for all sinned. And I argued that that statement, for all sinned, means for all sinned in the sinning of Adam. Because verse 14, as I pointed out a moment ago, is bent on protecting us from making the mistake that it's our personal sinning that brings death upon us. And that's the condemnation. It's those who didn't sin like Adam. Even on those, the condemnation of death comes. And therefore, the point is not that our penalty is owing to our personal sinning individually, but our sinning in Adam. Now, the reason that is so crucial, the reason that is so crucial to see and the reason we've been making so much out of it is because if you say, no, no, my condemnation will come from my sinning, period, not from Adam's sin or guilt or transgression. In order to maintain the symmetry of this text, you will have to then go to the other half and say, no. It is not that my justification comes from the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, but comes from my contribution of righteousness to my justification, and then you will have no gospel. 
In order for this text to make the sense Paul wants it to make for you, to elevate justification by faith and acceptance with God on the ground solely of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone and our union with Him, we have to let stand our condemnation in Adam and our union with Him that grounds that condemnation. That's the way the text is structured. We die in Adam, we live in Christ. We are condemned in Him, we are justified in Him. We don't make contributions through our righteousness to this glorious, perfect righteousness of Jesus. And we do not make contributions to Adam's sin, which was sufficient for our condemnation. That's the structure of the text. If you fight against original sin on this point, beware that you do not undermine the most precious news in all the world. Namely, that every sinner in this room can be set right with God, not on the basis of deeds done by you in righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. That's what's at stake in the way this text is structured. Verse 16 points, I think, to an answer of what our condemnation is based on. It says, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. What's the judgment? that comes from one transgression and leads to condemnation. See three things in that verse? A transgression, that's Adam's first sin, a consequent judgment, and a resulting condemnation. What's that middle point of judgment that is the consequent of Adam's sin and leads to condemnation? What is that? One possible answer you might suggest, and this would go against what I just said, is that, well, it's our depravity, it's our corruption, it's our fallenness, it's our bent to sinning and our actual sins. And that's why condemnation comes upon us. But I think that flies right in the face of verse 14, as I held it up a minute ago. And verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all. So what is that judgment? In verse 16. Here's what I would suggest. I think it is God's counting Adam's sin to be our sin on the basis of a union that he has established between Adam and his posterity such that our condemnation is just. Say it again. The judgment that leads to condemnation is that God has ordained, and here I think we're on the brink and perhaps in the middle of great mystery that no theologian has ever, I think, adequately been able to verbalize. And that's why I'm using this such-that language. That's an avoiding of specifics. But it's not saying nothing, but something massive. 
That is, God has ordained that there be a union. You could call it root and branch. You could call it head and body. You could call it president and country. You could you can use all kinds of metaphors if you want. I don't know the best metaphor. I just know that there is some kind of union in God's establishment between Adam and his posterity such that when he reckons Adam's sin to be our sinning in Adam, a condemnation follows to us which is just. God is not unjust. The Lord of all the heavens and the judge of all the earth will do right. So I think the judgment is God's reckoning us to be one in Adam's sinning such that the condemnation comes. So that's my first statement about what the meaning of original sin is. It is our sinning in Adam's sinning because in some mysterious way God has ordained to view us and constitute us as one with Adam in his sinning. Here's the second meaning. Through Adam's sin, all of humanity becomes corrupt and depraved, and our behavior goes haywire. And here we have to be very careful. The reason I say this this truth is barely touched on in this text is because Paul does not want us to think that's the fundamental problem with our condemnation. He does not want us to think in this text that the fundamental root basic problem that gets me condemned is that I do sins. The structure of this text is such that he wants that not to be the basis of my thinking about my condemnation, but rather Adam's sin and my union with Adam and its reckoning, imputing, counting to me. Nevertheless, this is taught here. That is, depravity, I think, is taught here indirectly. Verse 13, it says, Until the law... That is, from the time of Adam to Moses, sin was in the world. There it is. In other words, Adam didn't just sin. After Adam, all the way up to Moses, everybody's sinning. Sin is in the world. But that's just a pointer. That's just a hint. That's not a statement of depravity, the way the Bible talks about depravity elsewhere. To see depravity or corruption, or bentness, or rebelliousness, or slavery to sin, let's go to, for example, Ephesians 2.3. You can just listen, perhaps, to this verse. I'll read. Among them, Paul says, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, now note this, we were by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest. That little phrase, by nature, goes beyond. Verse 13 and says, sin wasn't just in the world. Sin was our nature. I don't just do sin. 
I'm a sinner. You can see it here in Romans 3. If you just look maybe across the page in your Bible or back a page in your Bible, if you're still at Romans 5. Romans 3, 9, summary of what he's been saying for a chapter and a half. Both Jews and Greeks, all of us in other words, are under sin. Notice he doesn't say both Jews and Greeks, everybody sins. So you, you might have come into this room this morning thinking... Um, well, a good religion would be, a good religion, call it Christianity or any other thing, a good religion would be to recognize soberly and honestly that everybody does bad things. And then to work hard by education and moral improvement to get people to stop doing bad things and do good things. And that's a good religion. That's, that is a religion. And it's a good one. It's just not Christianity. It's not anything like Christianity. Christianity has a worse diagnosis and a better remedy. Our problem is not that we do bad things. That's not our problem. Believe me, that's not our problem. Our problem is we're bad. We are bad. Are bad. John Piper is bad. I don't just do bad things. I am bad. And so are you. And we need to know it, feel it, despair over it. We don't just do bad things. So it says we're under sin. We're under the power of sin. Or look at verse 18. Or is it 10? Yes, it's verse 10 in Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. Or chapter 6, verse 6, 17 and 20. We are slaves of sin. You don't have to choose to do sin. Sin chooses for you to do sin. You're a slave. It's the master. You think you're free? Baloney. You're free to go to hell, Charles Spurgeon said. You're free to sin all you want. You are a slave of sin. I'm a slave of sin. Until that power is broken. And that's the gospel. So let me summarize these two parts of original sin. One, I'm a sinner. I'm bad. I'm corrupt. I'm rebellious. I'm depraved. I don't just do bad things. I need to be fixed at the core of my being. My nature cries out to something's got to die here. Something's got to be born again here. Something's got to be created here. That's the first thing. And the second thing of original sin is deeper than that. Deeper than anybody by human reason ever dreams. I got implicated in my forefathers guilt and condemnation such that I'm under the wrath of God and I need a substitute righteousness just like I had a substitute condemner and Jesus comes as a second Adam to replace the first Adam and be righteous where he was sinner and be obedient where he was disobedient so that as I was in Adam and died I can be in him and live 
I thought maybe I would only talk about the negative half, but you'll forgive me if I slip into the gospel now and then. It is, it is so good because the reason the gospel is so good is because it is so tailor-made to your need and my need. We are, if, if we understand our condition in original sin, the gospel will make glorious sense. And if we don't, it won't. I've talked to people recently for whom the gospel is nonsense. It's it just like water off a duck's back. Why? Blindness to their true condition. So, it might be good to make a summary statement as long as I'm on the good news before I close with those six benefits briefly. To just summarize, God's remedy for the depraved part of original sin and God's remedy for the condemnation part of original sin. My guilt in Adam and my nature as a sinner. God's remedy for condemnation is justification by faith on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, apart from works of the law. God's remedy for my depravity is sanctification by faith, which is progressive, built on the rock-solid foundation of justification by faith Alone, They are not identical and they are not separable. And the reason they're not identical is because this one is outside of me and judicial. This one is inside of me and moral. This one is instantaneous and happens at the first moment of faith when God credits the righteousness of Christ to you and accepts you for his own and acquits you for all your sin and gives you the righteousness of Jesus. And this one is not instantaneous, but progressive, which is why we're such still bad people. Still, Christians are not always nice people. This is no surprise. Read an editorial in the paper that criticizes Christians say, we knew this. Let's preach. Let's preach grace. And then chapter 6, 7, 8 is all about sanctification. We've been working on how do you get right with God as a sinner in chapters 2 through 5. And that's got to come first because you can't get to first base in sanctification until you know that you're accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not your own. You can't get to first base. And the reason I think Paul labors over it and risks teaching us this offensive doctrine of original sin is because he loves, he loves the gospel so much and we're so prone not to believe it. We just won't believe we can be accepted that freely. And so he says, okay, I'm going to show you how free it is. And he develops this argument here in, in chapter 5, verses 12, following. And then... He knows the question's coming. I said it last week. He knows it's coming. Well, shall we sin that grace may abound? That's the way he closes chapter 5. And the reason that question is absolutely crucial is because if you don't ask that, you didn't get it. It is so free, it makes us nervous that we're going to produce a church full of lechers. 
Forgiven muchers. Forgiven sinners and adulterers and fornicators and liars and killers and thieves. Yay, sin. Magnified grace, sin on. That's exactly where it looks. He's going. And he's not. So you better stay around for three years. (laughs) Because chapter 6 is no easier than chapter 5. Let's close with the benefits of believing these things. What good would it do you if you embrace what I've taught this morning? Number one, it humbles us morally and it humbles us intellectually. I've already said enough about morally. John Piper doesn't just do bad things. He is bad. He needs rebirth. He needs a new creation. He needs to die. Christianity is not a moral rearmament crusade. It is not. It is a glorious truth of a supernatural event that comes by the Holy Spirit based on a historical death and resurrection. It is power or it is nothing. I need to be saved from my nature, not just from my deeds. And it humbles me intellectually. Because frankly, I read a whole book. I never read a whole book getting ready for a sermon. I read a whole book on original sin. Not a big one. 130 pages by Henri Blochet, I think is the way they say it in French. And uh, just because my mind feels so inadequate for this doctrine. And I want to see, can he help me? And frankly, I came to the end of this book, which surveyed a lot of other views. And uh, nobody can nail down this doctrine to everybody's satisfaction. And so it pushes pushes our reason right up as far as it can go. And Edwards would go, my dear beloved Jonathan Edwards would go as far as anybody. And then it pushes us just beyond into mystery. And I, for one, will confess that there are elements of mystery about this union with Adam and this crediting of his sin to my account and my being in him when he sinned, that kind of knocks you over. And I believe it is taught, and therefore I believe, because Jesus has won my trust, that it is true, and therefore I will suspend my judgment and embrace it and watch it bear fruit. That's why I'm closing with these benefits, because it does bear fruit. It humbles us morally and intellectually. Number two, it deepens our gratitude for salvation. I have felt so thankful for being saved in recent weeks. I am so thankful that God saved me. And I I love to read Psalms and parts of Paul where he exalts as well. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. I'll give you one example. Chapter 6, verse 17 of Romans. He erupts in the middle of his argument about sanctification like this. But thanks be to God... That though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. What's going on there? 
you became obedient from the heart. Thank you. Right? Wrong. It's not what it says. You became obedient from the heart. Thank God. Why? You were slaves. Chained. You weren't about to be obedient from the heart. No way. Either God miraculously breaks the chains of sin, breaks rebellion, breaks unbelief, and frees you, or you don't leap for joy. Gratitude rises in proportion to your seeing clearly your slavery to sin. That's why Paul is so excited in verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves, you obeyed. You see the structure of that verse? There's a whole massive worldview in that verse. Thank God you obeyed. You were a slave. God must have done it. Therefore, you don't get the glory. He does. You get the joy. He gets the credit. Satan's power is broken. Massive, massive verse. Oh, be like that. You are so amazingly still. But I won't say what I said in the first service because I saw mean faces looking back at me. Nice faces, but kind of upset. (laughs) Number three, it helps us explain the world we live in. There's sin everywhere. Everybody's bad. Every government has police forces and armies and there are jails everywhere and programs everywhere and Rebellion everywhere. There's never been a utopia in the history of humankind. Never will be until Jesus comes. What's the explanation for that? The, the ironic thing is that the doctrine that may be the hardest to accept is the one that explains most of reality. The doctrine of original sin. Those who believe the Bible don't have to be baffled by the world. As we see it. Number four. Therefore, it gives insight into how government should be established. I mentioned this. I I thought of this one because of the political season that we're in. Governments. Why democracy? Why democracy? As opposed to totalitarian regimes or some oligarchy where a few rule. Why? Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, and C.S. Lewis both argued that the reason is the doctrine of original sin. Because the doctrine of the original sin is the only reason at root that you can give for why you shouldn't invest a ruling elite with absolute power. So they can get done what needs to be done, not fiddle around with all this messy democracy. C.S. Lewis is is the most... uh, provocative in the way he he says it's something like the reason we believe in government by the people is not because people are good enough to govern themselves 
But because they're so bad, you dare not invest any one of them with the power to rule. That's the best argument for democracy. It really is. I love democracy because we're all so bad. I'm not about to give you the power to run this country. And you know you wouldn't want me to run the country. So we cancel each other out and get along that way. And that's why there's democracy. And I thank God for it. It's because of sin that democracy makes so much sense. Number five, believing these things produces compassion. A, a text from Jonathan Edwards who explains, quote, This doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than of ourselves. It teaches us that we are all companions in a miserable, helpless condition which under a revelation of divine mercy tends to produce mutual compassion. And nothing has a greater tendency to promote those amiable dispositions of mercy, forbearance, long-suffering, gentleness, and forgiveness than a sense of our own extreme unworthiness and misery and the infinite need that we have of divine pity and forbearance and forgiveness together with the hope of obtaining mercy. Amen, Jonathan Edwards. Amen. If you are not made compassionate by your self-understanding as fallen, you don't yet know how bad you are and how good God is to you. Finally, this doctrine will help motivate us for evangelism and world missions. Very briefly, very simply, I close. Everywhere in the world, you only find one kind of person. Those who are in Adam. They bear the depravity of Adam's fall. They bear the condemnation of Adam's guilt. And every one of them has one and only one way of escaping that depravity and condemnation. And that is... They need a second Adam. Everybody who has fallen in the first Adam, if they're going to be saved, must be in a second Adam. And there's only one second Adam. Jesus. Which is why we must be a church driven by world evangelization, driven by world missions, driven by witness. Because there's only one hope for people fallen in Adam with that condemnation and that corruption. And that is that they be grafted through faith into the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed and was perfectly righteous and whose obedience and righteousness is imputed to us and them apart from works by faith alone. That's the gospel you can speak to anybody at work tomorrow. Anybody, who care what they've done. You can speak that to them. You can tell them there's only one solution for condemnation. There's only one solution for guilt and for corruption. And it is that God would credit a righteousness to us, not our own, which Jesus lived out and which he died to purchase. And that he would send his Holy Spirit into us and begin to work a moral reformation, which, yes, goes very progressively, slowly, but will one day leave us blemish, free, 
before the throne of God. Let's pray. As we close, just take one minute with me, please, in quietness, and ask God in your life, ask Him to do these four benefits. I'll just name them, and you pray a little prayer quietly in your heart after I name them. Number one, ask God for humility. Number two, ask God for gratitude to Him. More gratefulness for His salvation. Third, ask God for a compassionate heart towards other sinners like you. And number five, or number four, ask God to fill you with the spirit of boldness in witness about these things. Would you stand and receive a benediction? And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the throne of His glory, with rejoicing, to the only wise God, our Savior, through our Lord Jesus Christ, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.